you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. L.A. is on the verge of life in the least restrictive yellow tier, could move into it next week. Should we all go back to the way things used to be or change some things because of what we now know? Plus, a challenger has emerged for L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, and it's coming from within his own department. Find out who it is ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. Just heard Jackie Fortier talk about LeBron James possibly coming back. He's been injured for a while. You don't understand what a relief that would be, not because of any Laker fandom or anything like that. He's on my fantasy basketball team, and it's the playoffs, so I need LeBron James back as badly as the Lakers do. Well, maybe not as bad as the team does. All right, coming up, L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva has some competition. One of his own guys running against him next fall will tell you who it is and why they are running. That's just ahead. But first, we are going to check in on renters. Back in January, the state of California extended the eviction moratorium until June 30th, protecting tenants who can't pay rent because of the pandemic. The law also allocated $2.6 billion for a state rental assistance program with counties and cities setting up the application process. In Los Angeles County, the need has been overwhelming. The city of L.A.'s program, for example, opened late March, and in just a few weeks, officials received more than 124,000 applications, 100,000 applications, totaling more money than the almost $240 million that's available. Still, there's one more day to apply, which could mean having all of your rent from April 1st, 2020 to March 31st, 2021 covered and forgiven. Here to explain is Jeffrey Uno, managing attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. Uno oversees LAFLA's Eviction Defense Center. Jeffrey, uh, thanks uh, for joining us to explain all this. Hi, thank you for having me. Sure. Um, now, okay. Really appreciate the opportunity. Sure, sure. Now, who is eligible for the state's rental assistance program, and what options do people in L.A. have uh, in L.A. County have? Okay, well, there are um, several options as far as where folks can go. Um, you just need to know uh, what city uh, you are residing in or county and so forth. For instance, the city of Los Angeles um, it has their own program that's submitted for the city. Uh, the county of Los Angeles um, encompasses those folks that live in, in the county. Um, and then the city of Long Beach also has their own individual program that uh, they administer. Um, so there's definitely options and opportunities for folks. Now, if you just need to remember that if they live in the city of LA, they should go to that program. If they do not live in the, or Long Beach for that matter, if they don't live in those cities, then they can go to the county program. And the the websites are set up very nicely to where it can kind of point folks the right direction of where they need to be and so forth. So they know they're applying in the right place, if you follow what I mean. Yeah. And Jeffrey, to be clear, all of them close at 1159 Friday, right? April 30th. The city is, thank you for that. The city of Los Angeles closes um, at 1159 uh, PM uh, Friday, but the other programs are still going to be running as far as they have 
uh, resources left. So there is no earmarked deadline okay. for those. The only one is is for the city. So city of LA, 11.59 p.m. Friday, April 30th, just to be clear Correct. for everyone they out there. Yeah. even their phone hours um, to that so that people can call in, especially if that late push on Friday evening to try to get their uh, applications at least started. They're going to have a little bit of time to get some of those supporting documents in, but they need to get the application started by that time. And Jeffrey, for anyone that that is planning on on doing this, should they just, if they can do it as soon as possible, do it as soon as possible and not wait? You're, words right out of my, my mouth, eh? I mean, this is, is a great program that affords the opportunity uh, to renters to kind of get back on their feet. Um, you know, the downside is, you know, what worst thing, what's the worst thing that happens? They say no. The best thing that happens is, you know, uh, you get your rent taken care of, right? So I just can't urge enough uh, the attempt to try to get your applications in. And of course, it seems daunting with the paperwork, but, you know, try to get everything together so you can at least put in a fair try to get these funds. And this is something not to procrastinate. And I know that journalists, we're all procrastinators, uh, Jeffrey, but uh, not in this case. People need to not procrastinate in this uh, in this instance. Now, Jeffrey, given the amount of people who've applied, there's there's not going to be enough assistance for everyone, but the application deadline we mentioned tomorrow, uh, what would you say to people who want to apply but are discouraged by the odds? And I, again, would just, you know, it, it is a lottery system and you're right. There's a lot of need in this large city, county, of state and country for that matter, but I, you know, would really, really encourage folks to apply. There may be options as far as further programs in the future that might use what was uh, collected here um, for folks to create like a wait list, right? Um, so that maybe if it doesn't work out for some person or new funding comes in, that boom, uh, you know, your application will be one that they looked at um, because you submitted previously. So again, I know it seems like the ads are st- odds are stacked. Um, but I really want to still um, empathize or encourage that folks um, get out there and, and try to get their applications in. Yeah. And the downside is what? Just being told no and you're exactly where you started. So, you know. Exactly. What have you really yeah. lost? Right. And the upside is, again, you get your rent taken care of from that period from April all the way to the end of last month. So there's definitely a benefit. And then, two, you know, you don't have to talk to an eviction defense lawyer like me about, oh, my landlord, you know, filed a non-payment lawsuit against me, blah, blah, blah. Right. You're able to avoid all that. So, again, the upside is pretty big. Although, as everyone can clearly hear, Jeffrey, it is wonderful talking to you. You are a lovely person. So don't uh, don't <laughs> just don't bring yourself down a peg. Believe me, life, life will do that for all of us, I think. Now, OK, <laughs> Jeffrey, how do tenants prove eligibility? I mean, what paperwork uh, do people need to gather? Well, um, it's it's a dawning list, but, uh, you know, the paperwork that needs to be uh, required is um, identification, right? They need to know who yeah. you are. Um, they need to know that you live in the city of Los Angeles or if you're applying from the county, then the county of L.A., so forth. They want to see something, you know, that uh, about how much rent is actually due. So lease, ledgers, bills from your landlord, what have you to kind of establish, oh, uh, Miss Tenant, you owe this much, right? Mm-hmm. And they're also going to want to see your household um income information right okay. they're uh, set to uh, qualifications for this is basically what they call 50 percent area median income which in los angeles for a family of four a household of four is about fifty-six thousand and some change or less in order to qualify for this program because obviously if people are doing well then those people probably don't need it so they're trying to focus on the need um if you go a little bit lower to about 39 for four people then you might get a priority but right. again that cutoff is that 50% AMI. They also want to see a proof of, you know, financial hardship related to COVID or loss due to COVID, that sort of thing. Again, to establish, um, you know, that basis for the need. Yeah. And then they're also going to need some supporting documents as far as their application, W-9s from your landlord and that sort of thing um, in order to process this. And I know it sounds like a lot. Um, you, you know, you do not need all that stuff for the city one, uh, the deadline for tomorrow, you just need to get that initial application part in and they will give you an opportunity to c- get all that paperwork together uh, to submit. So again, um, just because, oh, I only have a day yeah. and a half or a day le- left, I can't get all this stuff. Uh, don't worry about it. Just get as much as you can in for that application so that you'll have the chance to bring in those supporting documents. We're talking to Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles attorney Jeffrey Uno, who oversees its eviction defense center about applying for the state's rent relief program in L.A. County. Um, you mentioned um, hardship, financial hardship. But how, how does one prove that? What do you got to show typically to prove financial hardship? Well, I mean, there's 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 a, a lot of different ways. Right. And again, the city and, and the other programs have been very good about 
providing a laundry list of, of things that can establish that from uh, letters from your landlord, paycheck stubs, um, et cetera, even self-attestation. Um, so I hope people weren't writing down all the things that they, you know, that I was just rat uh, rattling off right now mm -hmm. as far as things that they need. They, they've laid it out very well as far as you can use this or this or this and to try to establish whether it's the household impact, whether it's your household income, uh, proof that you live in uh, the city and so forth. I think they've done a great job in giving folks flexibility into getting uh, A or B or C to establish whatever uh, required document category uh, that is needed um, to complete your application. So if someone, say, has fewer hours than they did before, that, that would show up on the paycheck steps. Yeah. They could prove yeah, that the they're not working steps, as right? much. Yeah, Correct. You would show the, the old ones you're working before and then the new ones that you're working less. And that would be a, a basis to say, hey, hours got reduced. Right. And that's not far fetched in, in our economy today, as you know, a lot of places shut her down um, and, and so forth because of COVID that you know, work hours reduced. That happened to yeah. a lot of folks. So they're very understanding. What should tenants know about notifying their landlord? Well, and then, again, this program, that's kind of the beauty of this program is that um, the, te the, the, the tenant can apply. Um, for the services and get the applications in and, and, this, and the program will not uh, notify the landlord regarding, um, you know, uh, the, the reach and the, the possible cooperation and so forth. Um, also, the landlords can apply on behalf of their tenants um, is another way, right, in order to get the kind of the ball moving. And um, the, the side factor to this is that, you know, most of these programs traditionally we had in the past, right, required the landlord's cooperation. At the end of the day, uh, it, it's great that the person was, the tenant was approved, the money was there, but if the landlord didn't sign off and agree to cooperate, it didn't matter. Uh, the programs couldn't just hand the tenant the money to hand to the landlord. This program is unique in that, let's just say for whatever reason, your landlord doesn't want to cooperate, doesn't want to give you uh, any papers or anything for privacy or just frankly doesn't like you, whatever it is, right? Um, <laughs> The, the, the program's fine. We will give the tenant directly 25%, that minimum required, so the tenant isn't evicted for the period, so that you can yeah. hand that to your landlord and say, have a nice day. Uh, I still owe you the rest, of course, but at least you can't evict me for that. Jeffrey, let me ask you, how do you, okay, so I, the challenges, we talked about some of the challenges that uh, that you might have been seeing with your clients, but some of that is, they think it's like this onerous process that they can't ever figure out, and it's just too much, and it's the, the mountain is too high to climb. How do you tell people that, look, it you know, it may seem like a lot, but you can get through it? Right, and, and exactly it. I mean, you just take it kind of wave by wave, right? And I mean, obviously, the challenges are there. We're still in covid Obviously, we are opening up and, and seeing kind of that light at the end of the tunnel. And but, you know, still places are still kind of um, uh, semi-closed and limited as far as people bringing things in and out. Um, so it makes it hard and rely, people have to rely digitally on things, right? Mm. Uh, and have to send things via email, um, scan, print. And some folks don't have access to computers um, or technology in order to do that. So that again, kind of makes things a little more difficult in order to get those uh, documents and, and papers to where they need to go. But again, just can't encourage enough that attempt, you know, that try. There are, uh, you know, resources on the ground that are available and open to collect um, paperwork and assist folks get that paper who can't navigate that digital divide um, for whatever reason or uh, living with a disability. Uh, of some sort that reduces uh, that capability yeah. to, to do that elderly and so forth. So yes, the challenges are definitely there and it's something that can definitely be overcome and I can't yeah. stress that enough. Jeffrey, one, one last thing, the eviction moratorium lifts in June. What's your biggest concern? Well, the biggest concern is that the protections are not going to be there for folks, right? Um, that they, it'll be business as usual when it really isn't. Um, and I'm hoping right in the future, as things open up, uh, folks, at the various capitals realize that just because the switch is turned on is that um, the rehabilitation, right? Um, that repair that we also need, right? Um, doesn't happen overnight and there's still gonna be additional support, right? We're okay. still gonna need extensions um, of uh, the, the state protections, right? AB 3088, um, SB91, along with programs like the rental assistance programs yeah. to help continue folks beyond that end of April, excuse me, end of March, um, deadline into the next few months going forward and probably to the end of the year at least okay. as we kind of go through that recovery.
That's Jeffrey Uno, Managing Attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And for more information about LA's rental relief program, visit hcidla.org or you can call 833-373-0587 Monday through Fridays from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Language assistance is available as well as a hotline for hearing impaired people. That's 833-373-0587. Now let's take a closer look at the workplace environment during the pandemic. A recent study of more than 600 low-wage workers across California found that Asian and Latino workers lacked COVID-19 protections and information and also feared retaliation from customers and employers. Alejandro Domenzain is co-author of the study and program coordinator at the Labor Occupational Health Program at UC Berkeley. Now the study was conducted by Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Asian Law Caucus, and the Labor Occupational Health Program at UC Berkeley. Can you Walk us through how you conducted the survey and who exactly was involved. So we were really interested in reaching workers that are hard to reach. And so we made this survey available in three languages, English, Spanish, and Chinese. And we worked with community-based organizations and worker organizations that really have done outreach with these people for, for years. And they've built up the trust and the relationships. And so we worked with them to get these surveys out to low-wage immigrant workers, and in particular, Latino and Chinese workers in low-wage industries. And did they have to be a certain age or a certain kind of employee? They just had to be, you know, over 18, Mm. and they have to have worked, you know, during the past year to have experience with pandemic conditions. This was only for workers, not supervisors or business owners. Now, the survey showed the reality of low-wage workers in the restaurant, home, healthcare, and janitorial and hospitality industries during COVID-19. Alejandro, what did you find when it came to how safe people felt in the workplace? Well, the short answer is they don't feel safe. Uh, The reality is that they're not getting adequate protections, and that includes distancing, being provided masks, and also not getting any information about what the policy is or what to do if they get sick or if they are exposed. And in fact, in many cases, they were getting inadequate information so that, for example, they didn't know that they had access to paid sick leave. So you can imagine how important that is. Um, there's actually a, a study that came out today, too, from Human Impact Partners about how lack of access to paid sick leave has actually led to you know, thousands of cases and, and deaths in the case of Walmart, for example. So you can really quantify the impact when people don't know that they can stay home and be paid for that time. They're going to work when they're sick. And we know how that turns out. What about, I only bring this up, Alejandro, because I've, you know, I've been to the supermarket where I've seen an employee every once in a while maybe not wear their mask all the way up or something's in, you know, not right about how they're doing their job around other people. Is enforcing COVID-19 guidelines, is that putting workers at risk? What we're hearing is that enforcing the guidelines does put workers at risk because many customers um, can be upset about it. So they face harassment and in some cases, even physical violence. What about the relationship between workers and their employers? Uh, What was that like? Well, I think what we're seeing is that uh, workers really don't count on employers to fix the problems, even though hundreds of people bring up concerns. In most cases, they find that the problems are not addressed. And in fact, it's worse. They get retaliated against for even daring to speak up. Did people report what kinds of retaliation uh, they they experienced? Yeah. So what we know, um, not just from the report, but from doing you know this work for many years, is that what's very common is that a worker's hours will be cut or they'll be assigned to a less favorable task. Or in many cases, they actually lose their job. And we have one of the stories that's featured in the report with a fast food worker that faced really dramatic um, retaliation. We're talking to Alejandra Domensain, co-author of the study, Few Options, Many Risks, and also program coordinator at the Labor Occupational Health Program at UC Berkeley. Uh, this study surveyed 600 people, but uh, how reflective do you think it is of the broader experience of low-wage workers during the pandemic? I wish I could say that this is the minority, but you know I've worked in this field for 20 years, um, and I know what happens in low-wage workplaces. And unfortunately, this confirms what we've been hearing even before the pandemic, with people being in unsafe jobs where they don't get adequate information, they don't know about their rights, and when they try to speak up, they're retaliated for it. 
How did the pandemic, you think, magnify some of the issues that might have existed before COVID-19? So we know that people were working in unsafe um, conditions before where the rights were violated. But I think one thing that changed is in this case, the consequences are very dramatic. So if someone you know, had to come to work sick before because they didn't have paid leave or because they were afraid to lose their job for doing so, it might have given someone else a cold, but now it might have given someone else COVID. And we know that in many cases that has led to you know, hospitalizations and even death. You know, I, I just keep thinking, Alejandra, of the, the stress it is to work already in some of these conditions pre-COVID-19. But then to add all of that, I mean, these people are taking this home with them and they're taking it with them wherever they go. I mean, just the added layer of stress to dealing with these conditions and, and, and things not being enforced. I mean, that had to have some kind of impact. Yes. And one of the stories that we feature in the report is a worker who said that for months she would sleep on the floor to be away from her husband and her child, you know, and her young child didn't understand why she wouldn't hug her and said, don't you care about me anymore, mom? So there's very real personal um, consequences for workers. The other thing to keep in mind is that with you know, the unemployment rising during during the pandemic, a lot of workers that do have a job um, feel even more pressure to protect it at any cost. And so it's even uh, scarier to speak up when there are problems and they feel like they have to put up with it. Yeah, studies findings, I mean, were troubling to, to, to hear about, to read about uh, unsafe working conditions, the, the retaliation you mentioned, wage theft, uh, all that stuff's not new to employees in low-wage industries. Uh, Alejandro, what do you recommend should be implemented to address these, these concerns and these issues? Yeah, so there are many recommendations that are important, not just now during COVID, but if we're going to actually improve working conditions for these industries going forward, because the problems are not going to end, even if COVID does. And so we need to expand protections and benefits for workers, um, and we need to make sure that all workers are covered. We need to increase the capacity of state agencies to enforce the labor laws. So that might mean having more resources for them so they can have more staffing and a faster response time. Uh, We need to improve education and outreach to workers so that they know what their rights are, and that will include low literacy friendly uh, venues, it'll include uh, language access, and also supporting the community organizations that are trusted sources of information and support for these workers. And lastly, it's really important, we need to strengthen worker representation and voice in the workplace. So that can take place through unions, through worker centers, through health and safety committees, public health councils, but workers need to feel that they actually have a seat at the table and that when they speak up, that will be welcomed as a way to bring up a problem that needs to change instead of being retaliated against. Yeah, it would be ideal, wouldn't it, if if employers met you halfway a little bit, right? So that way it's not all on the employees to, to really grab and wrestle information from, from the workplace. Yeah, I think in a healthy workplace, you welcome workers speaking up about the problems because you want to fix them. I think it's really when you have a business model that's based on flouting the law and cutting corners, then it's going to harm your workers. And eventually it's, you know, doesn't make the business very sustainable. That's Alejandro Domenzain, co-author of the study, Few Options, Many Risks, and also she's a program coordinator at the Labor Occupational Health Program at UC Berkeley. Alejandra, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, L.A. is getting more wide open by the day. We're on the verge of entering the least restrictive yellow tier. Now, when that happens and our lives feel closer to what it used to feel like, should we all just go with the flow or maybe make some changes in our lives because of what we now know? Well, we're going to hear from an expert with all the answers when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. 
Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and on kpcc.org. I'm A. Martinez. Los Angeles County now qualifies to enter the least restrictive yellow tier in the state's coronavirus system. Now, that's because as of Tuesday, new cases have dropped to 1.9 per day per 100,000 people. Now, we just got to maintain that trend through to next week to be able to make that change. And the shift comes at a time when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is also loosening its guidance on when to wear masks. So how is this all going to work? Here to help us figure that out, we turn now to Robert, uh, Dr. Robert Kim Farley, an epidemiologist at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, welcome back. Thanks so much. It's good to be back with you again. Absolutely. And you know what's funny, though? It's, I, I, I think we're going to get to a point where our conversations might not be as frequent, Doctor. I, I'm weirdly looking forward to it and not at the yeah. same time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, we can hope for that to be the case. Yeah. But maybe right. move on to some other disease. I, <laughs> well, you know what? In this world, don't, uh, don't think that might not happen. Now, all right, remind us. Remind us what it means to be in the yellow tier and what we'll be able to do that uh, we cannot do currently. Well, firstly, to be getting into the yellow tier is our lowest tier in California. So that's good news. It means that we're going to be at less than two cases per 100,000 with an overall positivity rate in our testing of less than 2%. And it means that we're going to be able to do a lot more things. So amusement parks and fairs can expand their attendance up to 35% of capacity. Uh, Restaurants uh, will no longer be capped at uh, 200 people. but uh, they'll still have to keep uh, in their venue a 50% capacity or, or lower. Movie theaters expanding up to 50% of capacity. Um, shopping malls open with you know, some modifications. Even having now um, conferences and receptions and meetings that can uh, accommodate uh, up to 200 people outdoors oh, wow. or 400 mm. people if everyone's testing negative, for example. Yeah, that's, that's a big change from where we were just a few months ago. So what can we credit uh, getting us to this place where we can really fully open up uh, so quickly? Well, I think uh, the number of factors. Firstly, I think that uh, we've really been expanding uh, vaccinations here in California and Los Angeles. Uh, I think the fact that people are still following guidance regarding uh, mask use uh, and physical distancing, uh, and especially for those who have not yet uh, been fully vaccinated. You know, doctor, going back to what we were talking about, about possibly some new disease at some point, do you think we're better prepared? Say if some new bug came up in 2023, do you think what we've learned in 2020 and into 2021 will help us for something for the next thing? I think it will. Uh, I think we've learned about the need, for example, to have a well-stocked national strategic stockpile for PPE, ventilators, things like this that are needed in pandemics. I think we've uh, learned that we need to have contracts in place with private sector to be able to rapidly ramp up. Now, some of these things were already in place back after uh, 9-11, but unfortunately, uh, you know, time makes memories short. So hopefully with this big thing that we've just been going through, that uh, memory will stay around for a lot longer and we'll keep this uh, yeah. preparedness up to speed. That And that's the problem, right? If, if we think that everything's good and we don't want to think about it anymore, we might just be left unprepared. I mean, it's, it's all about where we put our priority on our resources to be ready for something like this to happen some other time. You're exactly right. I mean, California, for example, had a very robust strategic stockpile uh, back in 20, 2008 and nine when we had our budget crunch here. They recognized it cost $5.8 million a year to just maintain it by, you know, making sure the ventilators were still working and things like this. You know, we 
gave it off or sold it off. Uh, so when suddenly we had this pandemic, uh, the shelf was bare, so to speak. So hopefully we will not have that happen again. What do you think is to stop California from experiencing another surge? Because I feel like there are a lot of people who are concerned that things could get bad again with what we've got going on right now. I mean, we seem to be going in the right direction, but mm -hmm. um, you know, what if something trips us up? Well, I think there are a number of things at this stage that we do have that would bode well for us. Uh, firstly, we are getting a lot of people vaccinated. And so therefore, with their being immune, they're not going to come down with disease. Uh, secondly, for those who actually had been out and about, uh, perhaps not practicing physical distancing and masking, they've come down with disease, either asymptomatically or symptomatically. So they're immune because of that, too. So I think with those uh, things in place, uh, we would never experience a surge like we have ever had in the past. We're talking to Dr. Robert Kim Farley, an epidemiologist at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Uh, you mentioned masks. Uh, doctor, we've talked about this uh, many, many times. I'm a big mask person. Um, but as we start to reopen fully, the CDC is changing guidelines on masks. So what's the new advice? Yes. Yeah, so again, this is kind of good news in the sense that we're recognizing uh, as people get vaccinated uh, and they become immune, that they can begin to... Uh, do some things that they were not able to do during the pandemic and get, you know, fuller, more closely back to some of the normal yeah. tasks. Uh, so, so that's good, you know, gathering indoors uh, with other fully vaccinated people without wearing a mask, for example, um, gathering indoors uh, with unvaccinated people at any age from another household uh, can be happening now if you're fully vaccinated. Um, being able to travel in the United States without needing to get tested before or after travel or self-quarantining after travel. These are all some of the things that, that are benefits, if you will, of getting fully vaccinated and uh, hopefully also be incentive to people to uh, go that step and make sure that they're getting the, the vaccines. Do you think the CDC's guidelines, uh, especially on masks, it leaves a little room for interpretation? It's, sometimes I feel that way with, when they come down with stuff. Well, you know, I think it can be complicated. I mean, uh, it depends on what you know activity you're doing, whether it's outdoor, indoor, what's the yeah. venue, are other people vaccinated around you or not? So I think that uh, what we have to realize is that uh, it can get complicated. It's good to go online and check out, uh, you know, what is the activity you're planning to do and what is the recommendation about mask use so that, uh, you know, Hopefully, we can avoid confusion about where and when to use masks. Doctor, I think I'm fully I, vaccinated. Yeah, I, I think I've told you this before, but I, I plan on wearing a mask not because I'm afraid of COVID anymore, but I really don't want to run into someone sneeze or cough at the supermarket. Say I'm 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 round, I'm making a turn on an aisle, and all of a sudden someone had just sneezed or or allergies, things like that. I've always wanted to, to wear masks out in public. I never did because I was embarrassed by it. But now I think, I don't know, am I, am I, am I going too far on this or, or is it, or, you know, someone with my thinking, thinking right? Well, I think the thing is, it's going to be an individual decision. So once, just because CDC guidelines says you might not have to wear a mask if you've been fully vaccinated, uh, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to feel comfortable that way. So for yeah. example, if someone did have, um, you know, uh, a uh, severe, illness, that they would be then at uh, very high risk for severe disease. They may even want to take that extra precaution of continuing to wear a mask, even though they're fully vaccinated. Because as we know, vaccines are safe and effective, but they're not perfectly uh, safe or perfectly effective. So yeah. there's about 5% can still come down with disease. Although usually that again will be mild as compared to something life-threatening. I just don't want to deal with other people's germs. I just don't want to deal with it. And I think the masks for me is at least is a, is a good way to. Yeah. Well, I think there'll be less stigma of people out wearing masks. I hope, uh, I hope so. so. I, think I hope so. True. Cause I got a feeling. And I again, got, there may not be the person may not have COVID. They may have something else and you just assume not catch that. I, right. That's exactly why I just, I have, I feel a confrontation coming with someone doctor at some point that, that people <laughs> don't want to see me wear a mask, but you know what? We'll see. Well, I'll deal with it if I get to it now, uh, really quick when it comes to vaccinated people uh, still getting the virus and spread it. Is there any clarity on that? Because if the jury's still out on that, I think it would probably be best to continue wearing masks, right? If, if Even if people have all the shots. Well, you know, it is interesting. Uh, some of the vaccines like the Pfizer, Moderna, have they've had now some time to study this. So we have a bit more of the science in about that. It looks like that, as I mentioned, maybe 5% could come down with uh, disease. And maybe another 5% could come uh, infected, but without symptoms. So maybe 10% of people that have been vaccinated uh, still possibly, if they were exposed to someone with COVID, could uh, be infectious to other people. Mm -hmm. So it's it's small 
percentage, but it's still realistic. So again, if you were at home with someone who wasn't vaccinated, but was elderly or had a pre-existing medical condition, uh, you'd still want to be safe around them as well. And that, that brings me to something else that you and I have discussed, a doctor. A lot of discussion these days about herd immunity, community immunity. immunity. Uh, could you mm-hmm. help us uh, better understand what it is exactly and what it means to achieve it? Yes, thank you. I think one thing that's happened is that sometimes it's a little bit of a fuzzy term. People are hearing it in different contexts. And I think that's because sometimes the community immunity or herd immunity, as you properly said it as a medical epidemiologic term, um, can mean something different to different folks. So, you know, the pure sense herd immunity uh, means that basically there's no place for the virus to find a home anymore. And so basically you go down to zero cases. Mm -hmm. That's like eradication. But also um, community immunity can mean that basically you have a marked reduction in transmission um, the, because there's so many people vaccinated or have immunity due to natural infection that very few transmissions are occurring. And I think that's also a valid use of that word. So I think that uh, we just need to realize that uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to go to zero. And I think with COVID, it probably will not be zero just because there's so many other cases going around the world for the next couple of years before we actually get uh, much lower transmission everywhere in the world. And what's the level of vaccination needed to be reached, to have that be reached? Well, that's another good question you raise because you hear a different thing, you know, yeah. 70% up to 85%. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in a sense, 80% or more is probably a good target for us to try to uh, achieve in terms of uh, uh, vaccination and having a greatly marked decrease in transmission. I think a couple of things to realize that some of these variants, for example, are found to be more transmissible. The more transmissible disease is, the higher the vaccination rate has to become. So in a sense, it's variable depending upon what the mix of variants are in the population. I think also to realize that we have currently about 20% of people who have vaccine hesitancy in the United States. Fortunately, I think we're about 10% here in California. Uh, but that means that you know, getting up to 80% when you still have 20% uh, vaccine hesitant may be difficult, especially when you consider that we still aren't vaccinating children under 16 and Maybe we'll get to them by the end of the year, but probably not to children under 12 before next year. So those are still substantial parts of the population, which could still continue to have some um, uh, pockets of outbreaks occur. And I think you have to realize that we can't be satisfied with just average 80 yeah. percent, let's say, because that could hide, you know, pockets of, you know, 30 yep. percent. That's absolutely right. That's Dr. Robert Kim Farley, an epidemiologist at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, as always, thanks a lot. Thank you. More Take Two coming right up. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. Sheriff Alex Villanueva has some competition. Chief Eliezer Vera, a senior official in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, announced that he will run against him in next year's election. For more on Vera, we turn to KPCC's public safety correspondent, Frank Stoltz. So, Frank, who is uh, Eliezer Vera? Well, Ellie uh, Vera may be best described as a hard-charging cop who's also a savvy political player within the sheriff's department. He started way back in 1988 and almost immediately began working in some of the toughest neighborhoods. In the early 1990s, for example, he worked at the infamous Linwood Station. 
Uh, you might remember, A, the, that was home to one of the department's most notorious deputy gangs known as the Vikings. Uh, we have seen no evidence that he was a member. Uh, later, he worked at the Lennox and Compton stations on the crime impact teams, which aggressively targeted the most violent criminals. And then when he made lieutenant, he led SWAT, which obviously is a much sought after position. Right. You mentioned uh, he's a savvy political player within the department. How so? Well, in 2008, you see this turn in Vera's career where he becomes an executive aide to then Sheriff Lee Baca. Uh, that's a cherry job, a place where you can learn a lot about the politics of the department, who's who, who's wielding power. Uh, so this helps tee him up for higher positions. And three years ago, newly elected Sheriff Alex Villanueva promoted Vera two ranks to, to chief, uh, then assigned him to lead the high-profile Central, uh, Central Patrol Division. And then finally, uh, in January, he's assigned to head the Technology and Support Division, where he oversees the department's scientific services, data systems, and fleet management position, uh, a bureau rather. And those that's also a position where you learn a lot about how the department operates. So why did he decide then to run next year? I mean, wasn't he a supporter of Villanueva? Yeah, maybe more than that. He was said to be a close confidant of Villanueva, largely because he backed his uh, shoestring campaign for sher sheriff early on. But at a news conference in Grand Park, Vera was highly critical of the sheriff. He said when someone disagrees with Villanueva, the sheriff shows them utter disdain and contempt instead of civility. It's true the sheriff has been at war with a number of critics, including the Board of Supervisors and Inspector General. Vera said if he's elected, he would make it his mission to restore confidence in the office of the sheriff by partnering with the board and with the Civilian Oversight Commission. Uh, it's interesting, A, Vera made no mention of the racial justice movement underway and how he might react to that, nor did he offer an opinion on the state attorney general's wide-ranging hmm. civil rights investigation into the sheriff's department, a huge issue uh, for the agency. Now, one of the bigger controversies of Villanueva's tenure was an attempt to rehire former deputy Carl Mendoyan, who had been fired in the face of harassment and abuse allegations, but Vera played a, a role in that one, too. Yeah, and this shows you the sheriff's one-time trust in Vera. Uh, he assigned him to a three-person panel to review Mandoyan's personnel records to see if he should be rehired. Mandoyan should be rehired. Uh, remember, Mandoyan was a key political aide and friend to Villanueva during the campaign. So this panel uh, was sensitive at the time, and the panel approved the rehire. Vera now says he didn't know the panel would make uh, the final decision on rehiring Mendoyan. All right. Now, what has uh, Alex Vino said about the fact that uh, he's got competition, that Vera's going up against him? Uh, everybody has the right to run for political office, and uh, he's happy to defend his record. Uh, the sheriff points to the addition of body cams on deputies. He says he's moved ICE out of the jails and balanced the budget, and all during COVID, civil unrest, and a defunding movement. You know, I remember these conversations we used to have, Frank, when Villanueva was elected. A big point was made about the fact that he never had run a department before. So considering what we know now about Vera, does he have the experience to be the guy in charge if he winds up being the guy in charge? A, he has more experience than Villanueva, who only rose to the rank of lieutenant, you remember, before being catapulted into the sheriff's office. Flip side, Villanueva has a doctor of public administration, and Vera says he's still working on his college degree. The one thing they do share is they are creatures of the sheriff's department. They are products of its culture and practices, and that is worth pointing out. Now, the election's still uh, more than a year away. Anything could happen. But, uh, Frank, so what's your expectation that more challengers might emerge? Uh before your big uh, big announcement uh, in your run for Sheriff A, <laughs> uh, there will undoubtedly be other challengers. There are others within the department that are said to be considering a run, including, for instance, Chief Jim Helmold, who uh, ran in uh, 2014. Uh, former undersheriff Ray Leva may run. He most recently ran the county probation department. And there's an outside chance that former Sheriff Jim McDonald may come back to challenge Villanueva, mm -hmm. who ousted him in 2018. Uh, one of the more interesting questions is whether there will be a progressive candidate from inside or outside law enforcement. The time is ripe. We saw the election of George Gascon last year. And then one last note, uh, the powerful Association of Los Angeles Deputy uh, Sheriffs, 
the union, uh, played a key role in electing Villanueva. So far, they've remained silent on whether they'll back him again. I can't be the sheriff, Frank. You can be the sheriff. I'll be your deputy. How about that? I'll be your deputy <laughs> under sheriff or something like that. Frank uh, Stoltz from KPCC. Frank, thanks a lot. Thanks. We've talked on the show this week about how L.A. is set to move to the yellow tier, the least restrictive coronavirus tier as early as next week. That means that all of the amusement parks that we haven't been able to go to are starting to emerge as well. Disneyland California Adventure will let you know what to expect when you get to the gate when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. It's on trend for a world rapidly warming due to climate change. I'm LA's senior science reporter, Jacob Margolis, and I help Southern Californians understand the science of our imperfect paradise. It is not unprecedented at all for fires in the western U.S. to affect cities on the eastern seaboard. So that we can better protect our environment and prepare for natural disasters as the climate continues to change. There's a giant mass of warm water stretching from Alaska down to LA's independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. Yeah, Disneyland and California Adventure are finally opening their gates to visitors tomorrow after being closed for more than a year. Now, this reopening, of course, comes with new restrictions and health protocols. So for more on what to expect and how to plan your visit, we have with us Mike Rowe, arts and entertainment editor at LAS. Mike, welcome back. Thanks. All right. Uh, so, Mike, what's your sense on how happy people are about this? I mean, not just park goers, <laughs> but staff, too, because, I mean, I think most people are very happy that this is happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that the staff and park goers are all very excited. Uh, the staff, I get a sense of there's some anxiety. You know, they're uh, uh, getting used to the idea of being back around people. But a lot of people who go to work at Disney parks, they're there because they love Disney. They're there because they like people. So with the pandemic easing, uh, you know, the sense that I have heard from employees is that they are, you know, excited to be back, but also a little worried and uh, know that they also have to get used to the new COVID protocols as they go there. How many employees have been hired back? You know, they brought back more than 10,000 employees at their local hotels and resorts, but that is down from 32,000 at their peak. Uh, you know, that includes, uh, you know, they've only reopened one of their three hotels. They're uh, operating at reduced hours right now with uh, the parks closing at seven o'clock for the first couple of weeks. And, you know, they're still not bringing back all the attractions. You know, there were some like live shows like the Frozen, very popular Frozen live show at California Adventure. And the cast were laid off at the beginning of the pandemic. And they are not being brought back right now. Okay, now to COVID safety. Uh, tell us a little bit about the protocols at Disneyland uh, that they have put in place uh, for visitors when they get there. Uh, you know, one that I think is may bum out some park goers is that all the lines are now outside to allow for COVID safety. But that also means you're going to need to stock up on some extra sunscreen uh, as true. you wait outside for uh, for all these rides. They've also added extra sanitation, including stopping the rides more often for extra cleaning. Uh, that may slow down some of these lines as well. Uh, you know, also the parks, they're only allowing California residents. That was a state requirement when they first announced the theme parks reopening. But the state updated their rules last week to allow for fully vaccinated out-of-state visitors. So far, the only big theme park in California we've seen allowing that is SeaWorld. But uh, you may start seeing more of that as capacity rises, as they're able to let more people in. Um, right now, they can only reopen at 25% capacity. But once Orange County gets into the yellow tier, they'll be able to go to 35%. And then with the governor planning on lifting restrictions in June, it could be you know full capacity again. 
I was wondering how they were going to handle lines, uh, Mike, because, yeah, there are plenty of rides <laughs> where part of the line is being enclosed in a small little space indoors. So I was wondering how that was going to go. But uh, you're right. Yeah, sunscreen is a big, big uh, need-to-pack <laughs> list item uh, when you go to Disneyland. So what major differences can guests expect when visiting the park? You know, there are there are rides that it's just not practical to be able to uh, operate them right now with social distancing, be able to do so safely. And so a number of rides are shut down. Uh, some of those that are closed are just for maintenance, like the usual st- uh, type of maintenance they do at parks. Like there's no Matterhorn bobsleds right now because they're mm-hmm. upgrading that, as well as the Jungle Cruise is closed right now because they are updating some of the racist stereotypes that have traditionally been part of that attraction. But also, like, you're not going to be allowed to walk through Sleeping Beauty Castle. That's going to be shut down. Plus, also no parades, no fireworks shows at night um, because they don't want to have people gather in crowds to watch these big shows. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So will, will people still be able to, say, meet and greet their favorite Disney characters, though? There will still be characters around, but they'll be social distancing. You cannot get up close and personal. No hugs from Mickey. Uh, you can still uh, get a selfie with them. They'll be waving at you in the background, but they will uh, uh, not be uh, right there with you. It'll be very difficult to see Pluto and not go up and <laughs> you know squeeze Pluto, I got to admit. Aww. yeah. Now, okay, I understand the park is open to guests by reservation only. So how can people reserve a ticket and what should they bring to be prepared? You know, they've set up a new reservation system online, so you'll need to get a ticket and a reservation, um, as well as having proof of California residency. Uh, you know, they've set it up so a lot of this stuff is working through their app. There are options if you don't have a smartphone, but they are strongly encouraging people to download the Disneyland app to uh Use that while they're at the park to help add to the contactless experience so you can order food and do other things without having to get uh, up close with any of the staff there. You know, Governor Newsom is planning a full state reopening, complete full state reopening by June 15th. Mike, can we expect maybe looser restrictions at theme parks as we approach or get to that date? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch to see how those restrictions are lifted, how quickly, you know, the highest they can get in the yellow tier is 35% capacity. But there's been, you know, talk of uh, a full reopening on June 15th is, is sort of the target that the state is looking for. And once we get there, you know, will the parks go to 100% capacity right away? Will they be uh, sort of ease into it a little bit more? It seems like the parks are very excited, but they also don't want to freak out visitors because they want everyone to feel comfortable coming to Disney, uh, get used to it again. Um, you know, they're also still requiring face coverings even outside because you're allowed to not wear a face covering when you're uh, outside right now. But if you are in a medium or large crowd, you still need one. And that includes at Disneyland. Uh, so there's, you know, a lot of things that we don't know yet, but we're going to be watching, see, uh, you know, if there are any outbreaks there, see how people are feeling as they go back to the park. But that's one to watch. I don't want to walk into anyone's sneeze, Mike. Uh, that's Mike Rowe, <laughs> reports on arts and entertainment at uh, LAS. Uh, Mike, thanks a lot. Thank you. And if you're uh, looking for more information on Disneyland and all the theme park reopenings in Southern California, check out Mike's article on LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice I'm serious. I'm still wearing a mask. I'm just not walking into anyone's sneeze, anyone's cough. That ain't going to be me. Uh if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're on uh, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. Take Two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is next. You got a friend in me.